You are listening to a White Ridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. Amen. Thank you so much, Tim, for leading us in prayer. And uh, you'll be seeing, hearing more from their team and the other two teams as well as we give progress reports. And uh, I, I believe that it's every Thursday at 10, right, Marilyn? That we're going to be praying uh, at, in here in the building. There'll be a prayer group. Anybody can come and just share uh, in a time of prayer, and then and you can leave. Um, how good it is that God is... Uh, got us in a wonderful portion of scripture as we think about prayer. It seems to be a very important theme this morning, even hearing the, the testimony this morning and uh, Emmy's testimony and, and then uh, having Tim lead us in this way as well. I was uh, reading a bit about the history of uh, Sir Isaac Newton and it said that uh, Sir Isaac Newton had an exact replica of our solar system made in miniature form and he had it in his studio so at its center was this large golden ball that represented the sun and revolving around it were all these spheres attached to the ends with rods of varying lengths mercury venus earth all the known planets and they were connected with all these gears and and cogs and belts and and somehow it was all put together in such harmony that when he turned this crank the whole solar system in miniature form just kind of happened before his eyes and one day when he was uh, studying it he had a, a friend drop in who was not a believer did not believe in God and he stopped by for a minute and he, he marveled at this this thing this solar system in miniature form and he said to him Mr. Newton what an exquisite thing who made it for you and without lifting his head, Newton said to him, nobody. And then the man responded, what do you mean nobody? He said, nobody. Nobody made it. All of these balls and cogs and gears and belts just happened to came together one day. And wonder of wonders, by chance, they all kind of fell into place. And they, they just started orbiting around each other. When I turn this crank, it all works together. It just happened. Of course, the friend kind of got the message of what he was trying to explain that that indeed, uh, just as that could not happen by chance, that our entire solar system did not happen by chance. In fact, the scriptures proclaim that everything that is, everything was made by Jesus Christ, and it was made by Him and for Him, and in Him all things hold together. What an incredible statement. Paul loves making those statements because they're true truth. They're absolutely true about our Lord Jesus, God, our Savior, God Himself. And He is supreme of all supremities. He is to give, be given all the glory and majesty. And, and, and in incredible fashion, Paul is saying, and, and you, you, he's talking to the Ephesian believers, were included in Him when you believed. It's an incredible passage of Scripture that we've been looking at in Ephesians chapter 1. We've been at it for a few weeks. We've been looking at the opening verses of where Paul tries to unpack all of that are the blessings which are ours in Christ Jesus. And having come to a certain kind of end or conclusion to it in chapter 1 verse 14, he begins to try and then go into prayer and say, I just hope you can actually conceive of this. I hope that you can understand and know this God that we have to do with. I was reading that this, uh, there was a school in the United States in Itasca, Texas that 
Before World War II, it burned down, but because of the war and all the pressures on the economy, they weren't able to rebuild it until after the war. And so immediately after World War II, this school was rebuilt, and they, they boasted when they got this thing rebuilt, they boasted, this is the first sprinkler system of all time. And so they had people coming and visiting, they had students guide, guided tours. This is the first sprinkler system right after World War II. Well, after the post-war baby boom started, seven years down the road, they had to expand the school, and so they ended up having contractors kind of chop off an end and create this big wing on the school. And as the contractors came and started to, to work on it, they discovered that this whole sprinkler system was never connected to the source. And so there they were for seven years having this wonderful technology, and, and yet it wasn't even being used in case of, of fire. Somehow that, that's a parable to me of what happens to us as Christians in varying capacities. That indeed Paul teaches in Ephesians that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. But somehow we're not living lives that, that have that source coming, flowing right into us and out of us in terms of what God has uh, given to us in Christ. You know, it's interesting because we, we believe clearly, Paul teaches clearly that that. Every believer has been united with Christ. Carla read it this morning in Galatians 2.20. Every believer has been united with Christ. Union with Christ is, is uninterruptible. But abiding in Christ is very interruptible. In fact, we interrupt it all the time with our agendas, our ways. And so this morning as we, we look at the scripture that we're going to be looking at, Paul is, is, after having gone through all of the wonderful blessings that are the believers in Jesus Christ, going back to eternity past when he talked about how we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world and predestined to be adopted into his family, and then going forward that, that uh, he, 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 he revealed himself and having believed we were marked in him with the promise, the Holy Spirit, guaranteeing that we would be heirs, guaranteeing the inheritance that would come. He's unpacked so much about the grace of forgiveness and salvation and eternal life. And then, and then he's pausing in verse 15 of chapter 1 to go into this incredible prayer. And so he says in verse 15, Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. It's interesting that Paul hide, highlights faith and love several times. I think in the insert, uh, the blue insert that's in your bulletin, you'll notice that I've listed some extra passages. Many times Paul will highlight faith and love. Faith in the Lord Jesus. This is the vertical aspect of assurance and of, of uh, security. Last week I referred to an acrostic about faith, F-A-I-T-H. Can some of you remember it? Oh, great. Thanks a lot. <laughs> right on. <laughs> Thank you, Roy. Forsaking all, I trust him. I trust in him. Forsaking all, I trust him. It, that's faith. It's not just believing, it's, it's actually trusting, entrusting your life to Him. That's that vertical dimension. But, but Paul says many times as well, and your love for all the saints. 
And that's that horizontal dimension. In other words, as I've said before, there's no entertaining in this book of a guy or a girl, a person who, who has a union with Christ relationship and yet not a communion with the saints relationship. There's a vertical and a horizontal dimension to our expression of faith. And so Paul goes on and he talks about how to pray. I have two purposes for this morning's sermon. One is that we would come to see that the most important thing ever is to know Christ better. And two, that we would learn how to pray for one another to know Christ better. That's the purpose of my message this morning. And I'd like to start by suggesting that verse 15 begins the way he does, Paul does, is because he's going into a prayer that's going to try to increase the capacity to understand what Paul has just taught about in theological language. So I believe that Paul doesn't expect us to get all these things and understand them fully, but they're, they're more caught than they are taught. And so what Paul has to do is he has to teach the Ephesians to learn how to pray capacity prayers as opposed to circumstantial prayers. You understand the difference between capacity praying and circumstantial praying. You see, one of them is praying, Lord, change these circumstances for me. And the other one says, Lord, change me for these circumstances. Now, we're all inclined to be very good at circumstantial praying, aren't we? we I mean, it's an automatic. When we, talk, when we think about prayer, we're inclined to think about circumstantial praying. Lord, I pray for my children. Lord, I pray for my, uh, my health. I pray for the missionaries, etc. These are circumstantial There's nothing wrong with praying circumstantial prayers. Give us this day our daily bread, Jesus said to pray. Paul, he prayed, Lord, three times. He said, take this thorn in my flesh away. But in Ephesians, twice, Paul breaks into prayer, and he doesn't do circumstantial praying. He does capacity praying. It's the kind of praying like, kind of like the prayer of Jabez in 1 Chronicles 4.10 in the Old Testament when we read this, oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my territory. And similarly, the capacity kind of praying is saying, Lord, increase my ability to have more of you. Increase my understanding of you. Increase the capacity of my heart to love you more and other things less. Increase the ability of my mind to conceive of the glories of your splendor and of your, of your holiness. And so it is that idea of, Lord, change me, deepen my character, make my tolerance wider, lengthen my patience in difficult times, raise my perspective to see the big picture, the longer view, not just caught up in the here and now with tunnel vision. And so Paul prays this prayer in chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. And instead of reading the scripture this morning... I'm going to ask that we pray the scripture. We've already done that once in chapter 3 passage that uh, uh, Tim asked us to read. But uh, Rafa, would you put this up? Would you stand with me right now? And would you pray with me according to the prayer that we read in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning with verse 15. O God of our Lord Jesus Christ, our glorious Father, Give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know you better. Open the eyes of our hearts so that we might know the hope you have called us to, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and your great power for us who believe. 
Grant that we might know that power that you exerted in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. may be seated. Thank you. You'll notice in the bulletin insert that there's a few things I'd like to say about the scripture that we've prayed. And the first thing has to do with God's provision. God's provision in helping us to know Christ better. It is through the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Clearly the goal that Paul prays in verse 17 is that we might know God better. At that time that Paul was writing, there was a heresy floating around the churches. It had not gotten into full bloom yet. Later on, it was called Gnosticism, based on the Greek word gnosis, the common word for knowledge. And yet, at the time of Paul, it was already insidiously getting into the churches. And so the idea of Gnosticism was that that somehow God could be known better and that salvation could be attained through knowledge, and that there was a secret kind of knowledge that one had to seek in order to know God better, in order to have salvation. That indeed the fullness of God would only be given to those secret seekers that would find that secret knowledge and therefore know God. Paul turns it all around and he says, no, that actually the knowledge that you need is found in a person. It's Jesus Christ. And uh, that He is the fullness of God. And that all the wisdom you're going to need is found in Christ. And all the fullness you're going to want is found in Christ. All the spiritual knowledge that you're looking for is found in Christ. And so Paul takes that little word gnosis, that word knowledge, and he kind of makes a variation of it. And he puts a little prefix on He says epignosis. He, he calls it epignosis, which literally means knowledge upon. It's, it's, it's a, a, an attempt at trying to convey that this knowledge is not head-oriented. This knowledge is, a, is, a, is an experiential and proven, tested knowledge. Kittle's theological word book or book of theology in the New Testament says that it's a knowledge more closely tied to perceiving and understanding something by personal observation or experience. It's a knowledge that's more caught than it is taught, isn't it? It's an experience that's been tested and proven. You can learn about the knowledge of skydiving in a classroom, but you're not going to get epignosis about it unless you jump out of the plane with a thing on your back, open the chute, and trust it to land you on earth. That's the kind of idea that is epignosis. Some of the ways that it's used in the New Testament, later on in Ephesians chapter 4, 13, Paul says, "...till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God." And that's an experiential, experiential intimacy with God. Not just a head knowledge. That's not how the church matures. In 1 Timothy 2.4, it says that God wants all men to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. That's epigenosis. In other words, He wants all people to come to knowledge, personal intimacy with knowing Jesus Christ, not just a bunch of declarations of doctrine. In uh, 1, 2 Peter 1.3 Peter says, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness according to the knowledge of Him who called us. Epignosis. This idea is that everything you need for life and godliness, where is it found? It's in in a book. You just got to memorize the book and you'll have everything you'll need for life and godliness. Though that would be wrong, wouldn't it? That would be a knowledge that's uh, head-oriented. 
No, the knowledge that you'll have need of for everything about life and godliness is found in knowing Jesus, in knowing Christ intimately. And so Paul, others, Peter, talk about it this way. Christianity can be studied in a university, in textbook fashion. Many atheists, agnostics over the years have done that. Hitler was, was often quoting the Bible. Khrushchev apparently had memorized the entire Gospel of John. But studying the Bible without the intent of knowing God is one of the sure ways of deadening, killing your spirit and and deadening your soul toward God. And so the goal of Paul's prayer is that the believers would know Christ, epignosis, this personal experiential relational knowledge. But notice the method of Paul's praying in verse 17. He doesn't say, I prayed for you once. He says, I keep on asking just as the verse 17 is an is a, a ongoing prayer, it's connected to the ongoing thanksgiving that started in verse 16. Every time Paul heard about their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for all the saints, he's not stopped giving thanks, and that not stopped giving thanks leads to unceasing, not stopped praying for them, making mention of you in my prayers. And so that's the way Paul is, is, is accounting for it. You might think, well, what else does Paul have to do? He's in prison. He's chained to a Roman soldier. I wonder if sometimes we even think that way and we use it as an excuse of why we maybe don't pray as much. I think there are times when certain people are called to ministries of intercession. I think there's also stations or seasons of life when we might be called to prayer more. I I think of the retirement years, the golden years when you're not even physically maybe able to do as much sometimes. I've known many elderly people who are mighty in prayer. And you know something? Every time I do one of their funerals, I ask God, God, who are you going to raise up to replace them? Because I'm very conscious of the fact that, that my life and my ministry or, or our life together as a church and our ministries are supported by prayer. It's a mystery. I cannot explain that in the sovereign ways that God has ordained, He's also ordained that we be part of the plan of the outworking of His kingdom on earth. We heard it in the way that Emmy shared a testimony this morning. So the goal of, of capacity praying is to know God better, deeper, wider, stronger, bigger, higher. The method is this ceaseless, ongoing, everyday storming the gates of heaven. But also in verse 17, we see that Paul talks about the method or the means of his praying. And and that is, in verse 17, through the spirit of wisdom and revelation. That's the means by which we will come to know Christ better. That's the means by which that capacity praying gets answered. It's through the spirit of wisdom and revelation. God's own spirit that he's given us so that we might know God better. Now, does it sound like a contradiction? Verse 14 says that God gave you the Holy Spirit as a guarantee, a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. And then in verse 17, just a few verses later, he's saying, he's asking that God would give them the spirit of wisdom. And Does it sound like a contradiction? You know, at first appearances, it might look so, but I don't believe it is. And here's the way I would understand it. The scriptures teach that when someone yields their life to Christ, 
turns from sin and receives that forgiveness and grace in Jesus, that they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, God himself resident within the believer. It's a deposit guaranteeing the entire inheritance that is in Christ yet to come. But they don't know God perfectly yet. They're infantile Christians. They don't know all that they need to know. They don't they haven't yielded every part of their lives to, to God yet. They, have, they, don't, they haven't conquered every sin. There's areas that God is still at work in and so on. And so every believer has the entire Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit doesn't entirely have every believer. Does he, have in, does he entirely have you? <laughs> I think that's the way we understand the differentiation. Capacity praying is for individuals to be given deeper wells to contain the breadth and length and width and height of the love of God. Capacity praying is for greater inner revelation and insight and understanding of just how incredibly gracious God is and how incredibly sinful I am how incredibly merciful he is to have received me. How incredibly shallow so many of the goals of this world that are being pursued and how incredibly deep are the riches in Christ Jesus and the glories that he has for us. It takes spiritual insight and a spirit of revelation. It takes capacity praying. You have to grow your ability to have a hunger for God, a greater thirsting for God. It doesn't come without that kind of praying. And so another way maybe of thinking of it is to think about your life as a house. And uh, you've invited God into your house. You, you've invited the Holy Spirit has come in. He's come right into your living room. You're a new Christian and, and you're growing. And, 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 and yet the Holy Spirit hasn't been allowed into every room. But you'll notice that as, as the Holy Spirit grows in you, as Jesus in you, and you become comfortable and you walk together, you start to see that He's looking around the house. He's opening doors that were closed. And, and as you learn, he, everything that He touches, He blesses. And so you actually learn to trust Him more. And you actually open up areas of your life that were kind of closed off to God. And so you open the door a little wider and Holy Spirit goes into that room and He starts to make better things of that area of your life, your marriage, your, your past, your, 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 your attitudes, your anger issue, whatever it might be. Everywhere He goes, he just, He's going to bring some transformation and blessings. It's kind of like maybe, maybe another way to think about it is to think about, you know, Joseph in the Old Testament. Starting in Genesis 37 or so, we learn about Joseph. Brothers sell him into slavery. He ends up, by the grace of God, in Egypt, and he's, he ends up being a slave, a Hebrew slave, in Potiphar's house. Potiphar figures out that this guy's incredible. He starts to entrust Joseph with a little bit of responsibility. He's really faithful. Everything that Joseph touches gets blessed. So he starts giving more responsibility. Pretty soon, this Hebrew slave is in charge of everything in Potiphar's house. Something goes wrong there. You know what happens with Potiphar's wife. He gets thrown in prison. What happens in prison? Same thing. He's the lowest of the low Hebrew slave. All of a sudden, the warden of the prison realizes this, everything this guy does is good. Pretty soon, Joseph is in charge of the whole prison. And through this incredible interpreting of dreams, he comes into the Pharaoh's court, and, and pretty soon, Pharaoh 
takes this Hebrew slave and from being almost nothing, he, he builds up to this place of being trusted with the entire economy of Egypt. That's kind of like the Holy Spirit, isn't it? Everything he touches, he blesses. Every room he enters in your life, he's going to bless. It's not about you having to have more of God. It's about God being given more of you. Being invited into every moment of your day, being invited into your checkbook and in your TV watching and in your choice of friends and in your service and in your, in your hours of, of, of downtime. It's about Him. Which leads to our second point, and that is that, that God's provision, as vast as it is, all these riches and glory in Christ Jesus, has to come down to have a reception in our hearts and in our lives. And so the reception, according to verse 18, Paul continues, and the capacity prayer for the Ephesians now takes a little bit of a different slant because he, he directly prays and addresses the reception aspect of knowing God. And he prays that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened so that they would know three things about God and His blessings. And this word, this idea of the eyes of the hearts being enlightened, is, it's, it's a that they would know these three things. The word know there is not epigenosis, not this experiential, personal, intimate knowledge. Rather, it's the idea of an, uh, the, the word is uh, aido, and it means to be aware of, to understand, to perceive, or to see. I, I got a great illustration of this this couple weeks ago when I got a new pair of glasses for reading. And uh, I, I'm, an, I'm amazed. About eight years ago, I started having problems reading. If you were to put a, a, a finer, smaller font book ahead of me in a dim room, now it's just blurry fuzz. I never had that problem. But then you put these glasses on, and it's crystal clear. That's what Paul's talking about. The eyes of our hearts would be enlightened so that we might see and know Three things about God. What are the three things? Number one, that we would know the hope of His calling on our lives. That we would know the riches of His inheritance for us. And that we would know the power of His might. And all of these three are in Christ. God has nothing for you apart from His Son. And so, the hope of His calling, that points us back to the calling we got, being chosen in Him, adopted before the foundation of the world, that very past set us on the hope of a, of a trajectory toward the inheritance in the future. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing because in, in a nutshell, what Paul is doing here is he is saying the most important things about your past and your future and your present in this prayer. As complicated as the language might sound, that's what he's doing. He's saying that the most important thing about your past is not what family you grew up in, who your father or mother was, whether you had abuse in your family or not, whether you had a good education or not, whether you were wealthy or poor. Those were not the most important things about your past. The world will tell you that those are the most important things about your past, and they will set you on a course of destiny that you cannot change. 
Paul says very clearly in this text, the most important thing about your past is the hope of your calling. Your calling in God. Him loving you before the foundation of this world, choosing you, adopting you into His family, and giving you His inheritance to come. That's the most important thing about your past. And then he goes on to talk about the most important thing about your future. He says, and the riches of His inheritance. The world will try to tell you that the most important thing about your future is who you're going to marry. It's going to tell you the most important thing about your future is what job you're going to get, the education that you're going to have so that that will open up doors for you. The world is going to tell you that the most important thing about your future is how much money you're going to have to have for retirement. The world will tell you the most important thing about your future is how and when you will die. Paul says right here in very plain language, most important thing about our future is that we have this incredible, glorious riches in our inheritance in Christ Jesus. All hell may break loose in our future. I don't care. We have a glorious inheritance in the saints in Christ Jesus. And then he saves the best to the last. He, he says, and Ephesians, I want to tell you about the most important thing about the present. Again, the world could tell you all kinds of things about the present. The most important things that you are to pursue, you'll, you'll see them on every commercial on TV. You'll see them in advertising all over the city. Where you live your, where you, where you live your life, what, the house you buy, the car you drive, the job security you have, the health guarantees you can have, how your parents or your children are. These might be the most important things you think for the present and the here and now. Paul says, no, the most important thing in the here and now has to do with the power of his might. He says that the power of God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the Father, that same power, and then the old translations use this word, that same power is usward. That's a funny word, isn't it? That same power is toward you as a child of God. That same power that God exerted to raise Christ from the dead and that same power that seated you in Christ in the heavenlies, chapter 2, verse 6, that same power is, is for you. It's for you. See, the provision is, is this wide and, and our receptor is this wide. If you can grow your capacity, there's a way more power, there's way more love, there's way more security, there's way more incredible blessing for you. Just, you just need to learn how to increase your capacity. That's why I pray. Paul prays the capacity prayer. I'm not sure how much you've experienced this kind of blessing in your life, whether you've tested and proven God in this. I think that many of us, I feel myself included, are infantile in this, but I believe that with all my heart, this prayer and the one in chapter 3, 14 to 21 that Paul prays are all about growing our capacity to have a deeper hunger, a greater thirsting, a higher knowledge of Jesus Christ. And, and so this idea of ceaselessly praying, persevering, this idea of having the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we might know God better. 
that our eyes of our hearts would be enlightened to know the hope he's called us to, the riches of his inheritance, and the power of his might. These are incredibly important things. Would you stand with me as we conclude in prayer? I believe that the result of praying capacity prayers are that our desires become sanctified, that our lives become actually simplified, that our hearts actually become amplified, our relationships become clarified, our life goals become solidified, and the resolve to follow hard after God becomes fortified. Let's pray. And Father, now as we conclude this service, we ask you in the name of Jesus, O God, that you would indeed awaken us inwardly to the realities that are ours in Christ Jesus. We ask you, O Lord God, to give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation to know you better. We ask you, O God, to awaken us, Lord, give us the eyes, enlighten us with eyes of our hearts to to know this incredible, incredible hope of our calling, riches of our inheritance, and the power that is available to us. Father, whatever it is that you need, need from us, Lord, we ask you to give us the faith and the faithfulness of the Son of God to just lean, lean, lend it over to you, to, to yield it up to you, to trust you. And Lord, as you have more of us, may you do more with us. Would you sanctify us through and through that our whole spirit and soul and body would be made complete until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Lord, to this end, we pray and we thank you, Lord, for all that you will do even in this coming week as we pray these kinds of prayers. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Go in peace.